Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Hugh. And I'm Joshua. This is The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. Yeah, and as always, from COP, China and COVID, we've got a lot of things on the table. Yeah, the three big C's. Let's get straight into it. Friends, in each of our countries, we are seeing the devastating impact of a changing climate. And we know that our shared planet is changing for the worse. It was billed as humanity's last best hope, the final chance for the world to stop the worst impacts of climate change. It is the biggest and arguably the most important climate summit in recent times. The stakes are high at COP26. The summit is the last hope of hitting the target of keeping global temperature rises below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Now, after more than two weeks of meetings between nearly 40,000 delegates, COP26 has wrapped up. And it was quite a nail-biting finish. Negotiators are under pressure to deliver an agreement at the COP26 climate conference after the final deadline passed without a resolution. The conference had to be extended by a day after delegates failed to agree on the conference's final resolution. Some last-minute changes to the draft were made and finally all 197 countries signed on on Sunday. Hearing no objections, it is so decided. Now, while it's great news that an agreement was indeed reached, it actually doesn't have any 2030 emissions reduction targets. The parts about phasing out coal were significantly watered down and rich countries refused to increase climate aid given to vulnerable nations. And that really raises the question, how should we view COP26? Should we treat it as a success or as a failure? Yeah, I mean, what's the consensus in that question? Well, sadly, I think, as always with these things, it's a bit of a mixed bag. There is no doubt that significant commitments were made during COP26, but it's likely they'll fall far short of what was needed. Mm, Look, admittedly, that's not the news we wanted to hear, but let's focus on the positives first. Um, What were the major promises to come out of COP26? Yes, there were five key agreements that were made during the summit. The climate summit reached a major agreement to protect the world's forests. More than 100 leaders committed on Tuesday to end and reverse deforestation and land degradation. The first major agreement was a pledge by 110 countries to end deforestation by 2030. And the signatories to this agreement control about 85% of the world's forests. So it's a really significant outcome. The second major deal was a promise by 40 countries to phase out coal-fired power. Phasing out the world's dirtiest fuel source by 2050. That's the pledge made by more than 40 countries at the UN Climate Conference in Glasgow. But there's a caveat. China, India, the US and Australia, which together are responsible for more than 50% of global emissions, didn't sign on to the agreement. The third pledge was also related to fossil fuels. So 25 countries agreed to stop funding overseas oil and gas and coal projects by 2023, so not too far away. Fourth, there was the rather stinky issue of methane. It's called the Global Methane Pledge. 
Spearheaded by the U.S. and the EU, dozens of nations have joined the initiative to reduce global methane emissions by 30 percent by the end of the decade. All up, 105 world leaders signed onto the pledge to cut methane emissions. And this is crucial because methane is actually 82 times more destructive than carbon dioxide, and it's thought to be responsible for about half of all warming to date. And then finally, there was a surprise announcement from the world's two biggest polluters, the US and China. The US and China have announced a plan to work together on cutting their emissions in the next decade. Though light on solid commitments, the pact could send a strong signal to some 200 other countries. And that agreement was actually the result of over 30 meetings between the two countries over the last 10 months. We've heard that limiting global warming up to 1.5 degrees is really important. Do you think that those steps are going to get us to that stage? I think the short answer, sadly, is no. So a study released a few days ago shows that even if all the COP26 agreements are implemented, and that is a big if, the world could still warm by up to 2.4 degrees. And that's led activists like Greta Thunberg to call COP26 a failure. This is no longer a climate conference. This is now a global North Greenwash Festival. A two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. And I think she has some points here. So Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin and Jair Bolsonaro, leaders of three of the world's biggest polluters, didn't even show up to the conference. And what's more, the biggest delegation at COP26 was actually from the fossil fuel industry. As a result, hundreds of Indigenous leaders and NGO representatives walked out of the conference, saying that their voices weren't being heard. So I think COP26 is going to have a mixed legacy. It's estimated to have averted about 0.3 degrees of global warming, but the world is still on track for significant, irreversible and deadly changes to our climate. And that really puts pressure on organisers of next year's COP27 in Egypt, because scientists say that the decisions we make this decade will determine what the next century looks like. Now, the row over the surge of migrants at the Belarus-Poland border is escalating. The European Union is threatening to blacklist airlines it believes are trafficking migrants to Minsk, while the Belarusian president is threatening to cut off gas supplies to Europe. Well, Joshua, over the last two weeks, we've seen some really significant developments in the border region between Belarus and EU member states, Poland and Lithuania. And as you would have just heard in that report, thousands of irregular migrants from the Middle East have travelled to Belarus, which is in Eastern Europe, with the hope of gaining entry into the European Union. Now, as I'm sure our listeners would be aware, Europe has faced some major challenges with regards to migration over the last few years. So this latest crisis is a real concern for countries across the EU. Yeah, we've talked about the EU and migration on the wrap-up previously. But traditionally, most migrants try to gain entry to the EU through the Mediterranean or through Turkey. So why are so many people gathering in Belarus now? Yeah, look, you're certainly right to suggest that Belarus isn't really a traditional route for migrants seeking entry into the EU. And normally it would be quite difficult for Middle Eastern migrants to get to. So really the only way to get there is via plane. And that's exactly what's been happening. 
and we've seen the Belarusian government really make an effort to facilitate direct flights from countries such as Iraq and Turkey to Belarus. This BBC investigation uncovered a network of travel firms and smugglers who were organising flights and visas to Belarus as a package deal. So both Poland and Lithuania have declared separate states of emergencies on their borders and they've deployed thousands of troops to the region and they're also setting up huge barbed wire fencing. So with potentially 4,000 migrants stuck on the border without a route into the EU, it seems we're really at a crisis moment. Wait, so why is the Belarusian government actively flying migrants from other countries to its border with the EU? Because that just seems crazy. Yeah, look, I mean, I wish there was a less depressing answer, but it would seem Belarus is using the EU's vulnerability to irregular migration against it. So to put it more simply and bluntly, Belarus is using migrants as human pawns. Now, obviously, that's a very big call on Belarus's part, but there is a reason behind what they're doing. Uh, Back in August of last year, the EU placed a number of sanctions on Belarusian officials after Brussels accused Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko of falsifying election results. The EU will impose shortly sanctions on a substantial number of individuals responsible for violence, repression and election fraud. And then tensions got worse after Belarusian authorities intercepted a civilian plane over their airspace. They forced it to land so they could arrest one of their dissidents. The president of Belarus is accused of hijacking a commercial flight with 170 people on board to arrest a young journalist who criticised the regime. That particular move led the EU to block Belarusian airlines from European airspace. So clearly the relationship between Belarus and the EU is really at rock bottom and that's why Belarus feels justified in hitting the EU out on migration. So what is Belarus hoping to get out of doing this? Well, I think first and foremost, Belarus wants the EU to stop putting sanctions on it. Now, as I'm sure you would have noticed, there's an issue with that logic. And the fact is that Belarus has just made Europe more angry. At one stage, Lukashenko even threatened to cut off gas supplies to Europe. So all of this has led Europe to actually plan out putting more sanctions on Belarus. So it would seem all Lukashenko has done is aggravate the situation. We will continue to fight against illegal human trafficking by Belarus. They must know that the European Union is no longer willing to accept that. Uh, Before the election crisis last year, Belarus was actually drawing quite closely to the EU, but now that these tensions have kicked off, they've been forced to run back into the arms of Putin and Russia. Why do I feel that so many of these crises come back to Russia in some shape or form? So what's it doing and what's its role in the crisis here? You're very right to point out that Russia has a lot of influence over Belarus, particularly now that they've been cut off from the EU. EU officials, including Merkel, have actually asked Russia to intervene and to stop Lukashenko from continuing to push migrants towards the border. But look, it would seem that Moscow is pretty happy to let Belarus create some chaos in Eastern Europe, especially if it means punishing Lithuania and Poland, because those are some of the countries which are the most opposed to Russia inside the EU. In fact, uh, Russia's gone as far as to do uh, joint military exercises with Belarus to show its support. And just recently, it flew nuclear-capable bombers over Belarusian airspace. Now, that's obviously got certain EU members worried that military action might be on the cards. So with Moscow happy to let Belarus uh, hurt the EU, uh, Europe has had to take matters into its own hands. And we've seen European pressure uh, being applied in Iraq. Uh, which led Baghdad to cancel all direct flights to Belarus. And Turkey itself has also stopped Syrian, Yemeni and Iraqi citizens 
from getting on planes as well. But ultimately, unless Europe can find a way to block every major air route into Belarus, it would seem that Lukashenko is going to keep the pressure going for as long as possible. Q, our third story takes place in Thailand, where there's been a major political development that actually has big consequences for the country's pro-democracy movement. Last week, Thailand's top court ruled that calls for reform to the country's monarchy are in fact unconstitutional. And that decision could pave the way for pro-democracy leaders to be charged with treason, which carries the death penalty. Yeah, wow, that's obviously quite a serious development, especially in Thailand, which has a long history of political tension. So, look, why did the court come to that decision? Well, to make sense of the court's ruling, there are two things you really need to know about Thailand. So, first of all, the country has been ruled by the military since a coup in 2014. Thailand's military has announced a coup d'etat just two days after insisting one wasn't underway. Global leaders have been quick to condemn the move, which has everyone wondering what might be next. Since it took over, the military has squashed opposition movements and democratic reforms. And second, the military is politically aligned with the country's king. He is the world's richest monarch, with a net worth of roughly 40 billion US dollars, which is 80 times the wealth of Queen Elizabeth. He is heavily protected, not only by his allies in the military, but also by so-called les majestés laws that make criticising him punishable by up to 15 years in jail. These repressive laws have caused growing resentment among Thailand's youth. And you might remember that in September 2020, that frustration boiled over into unprecedented protests. Thai teenagers are seizing the opportunity to demand reform of an education system they say is outdated. So despite the pandemic, tens of thousands of high school and university students gathered on Bangkok streets. In big numbers, they came to the centre of Bangkok to escalate their call for change. Protesters gathered around Democracy Monument, a symbol of what they say Thailand doesn't have. They clashed with the military in protests that lasted over three months. Overall, the students had three demands. One, that the Prime Minister resign. Two, that the constitution be rewritten to become more democratic. And three, that the king's powers be limited by the constitution. And it's that last demand that led to the court's ruling last week. Huh, how so? Well, the case concerned three students who made speeches during those protests, and they called for law reform and for the royal family to be given less taxpayer money on account of the fact that it's already so wealthy. The King's supporters said that that breached the Les Majesté laws, and they took them to court. And sure enough, the country's constitutional court agreed. It ruled that any statements that undermine or weaken the monarchy are illegal and that the students were guilty of trying to overthrow the king. What does that mean for students and the wider democracy movement across Thailand then? Well, for the three students who were subject to the court's ruling, it means, as I said before, that they could be convicted of treason and sentenced to death. 
The decision is also seen as a victory for the country's military, which will likely use the court case to crack down on the country's pro-democracy movement. But analysts say there is still some hope here. Last year's protests really shattered cultural taboos about speaking out against the monarchy and the government. And in what would have been unthinkable a few years ago, some newspapers and political parties have also joined the protesters' calls for change. And what's more, in the hours after the decision, the Constitutional Court's website was hacked by activists who vowed to hit the streets again in the coming months. So it seems Thailand's student-led democracy movement is anything but dead, which raises a lot of interesting questions about the future direction of the nation's politics. The 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, they're already making headlines. Now, this story took off yesterday after a State Department official said the U.S. is considering having discussions around boycotting the Games. Well, in the last few weeks, we've seen a bipartisan push by U.S. senators to boycott the upcoming Beijing Winter Olympics in February of 2022. And with all the attention that was placed on Tokyo due to COVID, there's been a bit of a gap in media coverage around the Beijing Olympics. With the Winter Olympics now only a few months away, there's actually been some quite significant activism underway to cancel or diminish the Games in retaliation for China's human rights abuses. Wow, that's actually pretty huge, especially given the US has won the second highest number of Winter Olympic medals in history. So they're a major player in these Games. Surely they wouldn't want to withdraw their athletes altogether. Yeah, no, look, crucially, the Senate initiative has been engineered in a way that still allows US athletes to go along. However, if the bill is successful in clearing both houses of Congress, no officials representing the United States government will be enabled to attend. So it's very specifically targeted at denying Beijing political support and legitimacy uh, without punishing US sports people who've been training for years for this moment. So is the US alone in advocating for this type of diplomatic boycott? Yeah, so like beyond the US Senate initiative, we've also seen a lot of grassroots activism uh, throughout the democratic countries of the world calling for similar diplomatic boycotts or other forms of protest. The European Parliament has voted for its diplomats to boycott the Winter Olympics in Beijing over continuing allegations of human rights abuses. But we've also seen a group known as the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, which includes about 100 MPs from 19 countries, and they've called on Beijing to be stripped of the Games entirely. Now, activists are citing a range of human rights abuses initiated by the Chinese government as justification, and that ranges from atrocities committed in Xinjiang, Tibet and Hong Kong to policies targeting ethnic Mongolians. But honestly, with the Games this close, it seems that the focus is shifting away from stripping Beijing of the Games and more towards diminishing the prestige factor that they would get out of hosting them. And how has China responded to these efforts? Well, they've been a bit tricky. They're actually expected to invite Joe Biden to attend in person. So what this would do is essentially wedge the US and force Washington to either back down on its threat or to escalate the boycott proposal further. The one from Xi would serve as almost a dare to Biden, whom he's known for a long time, decline and put the relationship on ice or accept and anger allies and human rights activists that have... You know, Joshua, the Olympic saga is just one aspect of a broader and growing ideological divide between China and the US. China. 
just in the last few days, we've seen the Chinese Communist Party hold a major meeting in which they approved a historical resolution praising Xi Jinping for his, quote, decisive leadership in rejuvenating the Chinese nation. Just like Mao, Chinese President Xi Jinping is symbolically elevated to the same status as the country's paramount leader after the Communist Party passed a rare resolution. And that's only the third time that such a resolution has been proclaimed. And the two previous instances, it was for Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. So the historical significance of Xi Jinping's leadership is being made very clear by party officials. Now, three years ago, the Chinese Communist Party actually removed its presidential term limits. President Xi, already one of the most powerful Chinese leaders in decades, will now be able to rule indefinitely, perhaps, perhaps, for life. And so it would seem that as Western and democratic countries are really beginning to confront China on its human rights abuses, Beijing is moving even further towards a more entrenched form of authoritarianism under Xi Jinping. And with Olympic boycotts having featured quite a bit during the previous Cold War, it may just be that we are heading for a new era in ideological tensions between the US and China. Yeah, they say history just keeps repeating itself, and it certainly looks like that is the case here. Well, that is all for this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. Next week's episode will be part four of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. Rhiannon will be taking a look at inequality and the way that it's challenging the status quo in democracies all around the world. But until then, follow our Instagram page for news updates, quizzes and bonus content. And you can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode topic via our website. Links are in the episode description. We'll see you in a fortnight. Bye.